You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I can beat him. He's tired. I can tell. We're all going to have to seriously question the system for selecting our national leaders. Fire leadership! Well, you can't. When I came here tonight, tonight to be nice, polite, and just get the beat it off. This debate's starting to liven up a little. I thought I was going to die on the vine, but in any event. You've been inconsistent. You've voted against it every time. That's when we use the time machine. We go back in time before the surprise attack. It's clean. It's, it'll save our kids in the event of a Russian first strike now. Sounding more like Al Higg than Al Gore. Really haven't had it spelled out very successfully. Clearly, how can we appeal to black, to Hispanic, to Asian Pacific, to young people and to old, and we can win the house? Al, I enjoyed your lecture on consistency, but apparently they made their choice. We hope that we can give the same message to the voters of New Hampshire. Uh-oh. The problem with the podium just fell. Well, you know, there are too many people up there. And they th- At the end of the month, people have less money to spend. What action plan for America? Tax cuts, aid for the Contras, fighting wasteful spending. A strong man with a record of solving tough problems. And when I thought about what we're to say, there was really only one choice where to say it. I had to come here to my home, to Texas. I can beat him. He's tired. I can tell. So said some recent law school graduate and county councilman from Delaware, I in a scrap with a U.S. senator that served for 25 years, elected every time. Calabox, his friend said. He's tired. He doesn't want to do it. In a presidential year? In this time, 1972, Delaware was a pretty solid Republican state. Certainly voted Republican more than it did Democrat. Running with Nixon in the first state was actually a good thing. He's only running because Nixon made him. He's takeable. We began as young men and women, full of enthusiasm and fired with passion and purpose. More passion and purpose than political wisdom. They went to work. Family, brother Jimmy, sister Val, round the table, and lots of volunteers. First election that 18-year-olds could vote in the United States, and Joe Biden, he was a youngin'. He was not even 30. The old saying went, don't trust anybody over 30 back then. Well, Joe Biden wasn't. And they made posters that might as well have said, Caleb Boggs is old. In 1950, Caleb Boggs wanted to make Americans safe from Stalin. Joe Biden wants to make them safe from crime. 
Caliboggs' generation wanted to cure polio. Joe Biden's generation dreams of conquering heroin. Yes, Biden strongly suggested age, lack of zeal, but also kept the issues practically Republican. Joe was flirting with being a Republican in Delaware before he ran for a county seat. He didn't talk about Vietnam much. His mom hosted coffees up and down the small state where coffee and face-to-face meetings mattered. Ten coffees a day. Calabogs didn't take a shot at Biden. Stayed in Washington. Why mention his name? Why give him the coverage? Delaware GOP campaign for Nixon and the gubernatorial candidate they thought would have a great chance of winning. And that was exactly as Biden had planned it. Only a handful of people outside the family thought I had a real shot to win. Smart guys told me, why don't you put out a press release? Let them know all the great things you're doing. But I wanted to meet as many voters as I could to let them see me and hear me all through 1971 and 1972. It was coffee under the radar with Joe. When the press did cover me, they didn't give me a snowman's chance in August. He would go into malls, walk right up to people and say, I'm Joe Biden. I'm running for Senate. Do you trust me? From Richard Ben Kramer, what it takes. Joe could see the whole thing in his head. What's more, he could talk it. The organized emotion of a football play. Practice for months until it was clockwork where he saw in his mind before the snap of the ball, how he'd run exactly 20 yards down the field, where he'd faint for the goalpost, then cut to the sideline. Like it already happened. He saw how he'd plant his left foot, saw the tuft of the grass that his cleats would dig into, the look on the cornerback's face as he would leave that SOB in the dust. He tried to tell his experts and gurus. He had to see the moves. He wanted to play them out in his head with scenes, with dialogue. And he saw it here. That Kale Boggs would not react in time. Biden was at 3% of the polls when he rented the biggest and best ballroom in the state for his victory celebration. In fact, nothing angered Biden more than when polls showed him inching up and the press took notice. Here's Time Magazine. A college football and rugby enthusiast, Joe Biden keeps his athletic trim by skiing and playing an extremely rough brand of touch football. The article used the word Kennedy. Good press for Biden. Perhaps any other candidate would love getting that press for Biden. He saw it as waking up the GOP, and it did. Boggs came into the state more. Every Delaware Republican up and down the state got their orders. Now, talk about Joe Biden. Talk about taxes. Talk about liberal. But there was one good development. Biden had wanted to get Boggs in a TV debate. And of course, Boggs had stalled. Now Boggs wanted a debate. Bango! Plan in action. He was going to buy that house, a great investment, this 
Wilmington suburb house. Huge lot. Subdivided up. Put in trees. Just like his house now. The house that used to be owned by the DuPonts. They couldn't hold it. Kind of house that you'd see in a movie. He would buy it. Parcel it out. He didn't even have the money at the time. Talk to the realtor. Talk to the developer. We'll get you the money. We'll pay it off later. We'll sell the parcels. I already got people. Tim Ridley and and Tom Donilon couldn't get Senator Biden to stop talking about the dang house. Tim Ridley had just joined Biden's office in 1987. And it was really supposed to be a campaign job. That's what he was here. The talk was that Biden would run for president. Now, what was he talking about? Not about Iowa, where he had visited several times, but still seemed a little detached from events. Not about New Hampshire. He was talking about his house. A land developer? What was he, to become a landlord? It's not a good idea, Senator. Why not, Tim? I'm going to put in a tennis court. A tennis court? Didn't seem like the way to appeal to blue-collar Reagan Democrats. A million five house, Senator. It was 1987 when a million five, you know, meant a lot more. You don't get all of this. I'm not spending a million dollars. I'll sell it for a million dollars when it's done. It's not worth a million dollars now. It doesn't matter, Senator. The Wall Street Journal, they're going to dig into this. The Journal was, in 1987, on a jihad of adding up candidates' finances, showing how much they actually own. They particularly liked any candidate that might be appealing to the middle class. Wall Street Journal, that's fine. They'll know more than anybody about the financing on this. They'll understand it. I'm going to parcel it up with plantings. Great place for the weekends. Tom and Tim were not getting this. They didn't want to hear about plantings. It was time to announce for president. There are going to be others. Hart is already the front runner. And this guy's talking about a house, mortgages, a place for the weekend. Biden, now a senator for three terms, could have run in 1984. His pollster friend, Pat Cadell, wanted him to run as the baby boomer candidate. He was a little older than the baby boomers, but always identified with them. Biden did not run in 84. And Cadell went on to market new coke and work with lobbyists. The aides pressed Biden on that, too. What about that week in Hawaii that you spent with Cadell in a vacation condo? Not what a hungry presidential candidate does. Pat's a friend, guys. Do you know whose townhouse it was, Senator? No. The band manager for Alice Cooper. Joe didn't know who Alice Cooper was. But who cares? Don't you guys get this? I gotta show you this house. If you can see it, it's going to be great. Come on, get in the Bronco. without boast or bravado, I've fought for my country, I've served, I've built, and I'll go from the hills to the hollows. Why does anybody run for president? Democracy tells us it can be anyone. In the 1988 election, it seemed like everyone who was anyone or not even anyone, because... 
You had no incumbent running. And you had open races in 1988 on both sides. George Bush was the incumbent vice president. But that was a mix. There was a perception, the wimp factor in some reports, that he wasn't strong. Reagan was such a big media object that Bush, compared to that, was small. And that opened up opportunities for others. Dole, Pat Robertson, the televangelist 700 Club, Pete DuPont, governor of Delaware, two candidates from Delaware, Jack Kemp, author of Reagan's Tax Hunt, trying to claim his legacy as well, Al Haig, former Secretary of State, everybody run? Why does a Bruce Babbitt run? Arizona Democrat? It was a small state. It's bigger now. Now, in electoral votes, Arizona's bigger than Wisconsin or Minnesota or Missouri. And it's just as big as Tennessee. Back in 88, it was like Mississippi or Nebraska. Seven votes. So, Babbitt was a consensus builder. For a presidential contender, he was small-time, but he had this idea. He'd pay off all of Reagan's deficit. Every American would pay a national sales tax, a consumption tax. It's not popular yet, he would tell reporters, but it's getting there. We reach down into our hearts and souls as Democrats and say we're going to confront reality. We're going to speak honestly to the American people. They say he's right, Babbitt said of the press and pundits. If they could vote, Babbitt would be wearing the windbreaker with the POTUS seal. But they don't vote. And a tax on stuff you buy for something abstract? I'm resigned to being the underdog, Babbitt would say proudly. Why does a Paul Simon run? No, not that Paul Simon. The other one, in this case. He signed a controversial measure, the Morrill Act, the Land Grant College Act, which James Buchanan, the head of him, had vetoed. That bill was the GI Bill of the 19th century. That fellow that looked straight out of Illinois farm country, the publisher of a newspaper, straight 1930 haircut, big glasses, huge ears, an old-fashioned square of a congressman who beat Charles Percy, a liberal Republican, and was senator for just three years, and now running for president of the United States. His proposal for a 1980s work progress administration seemed as old as his look, that Midwestern drawl, and that trademark bow tie around his collar. After I ran Contra, we need someone who is reliable. And that's what he kept saying. What made Pete DuPont run? Governor of Delaware, he got Actually got his party angered when he ran for president. They wanted him to take on Biden in the Senate race. But you weren't going to beat Joe in 1988, not in Delaware. And DuPont wanted bigger things. But how could he win? Running against a VP, he had to pick an issue. His was privatizing Social Security. I want to say as a conservative that I believe that our party not only must appeal to evangelical Christian, but ethnic Catholic, to the Jewish community, to young people, to senior citizen. Frankly, Pete, your idea of, liberal, of, of uh, abolishing Social Security, and frankly, oh, Matt Robertson... Well, for abolishing well, Social Security, Jack. It's for giving a market 
And phasing out subsidies to farmers. How is he going to win Iowa? Well, that was exactly it. He picked an issue that was so obviously not going to win him Iowa. And he'd play the martyr. Maybe he'd get votes in a fiscally conservative, puritanical sense. He'd make all the candidates sign a no-taxes pledge. He shoves it in Bob Zoll's face. There were other candidates who were discussed in the news media, and 88 becomes a huge feel. Mario Cuomo, Bill Bradley, Patricia Schroeder, congresswoman from Colorado, could have potentially been a 1984 running mate for Walter Mondale. Each denounced at some point in 1987 that they would not run for 1988, which opened it all up, particularly in the case of Mario Cuomo, who was widely expected to run. Cuomo had made this great speech in the Democratic Convention. What was going on? Senator Gary Hart. This election is a choice between the national interest and the political establishment. We had the Hart candidacy. He had run in 84. A lot of people thinking they should have ran Hart after Walter Mondale's blowout. Looking to him, 60% plus in Iowa, and maybe kept some people out of the race. My candidacy represents change and the rebirth of idealism and hope. 88 started in 87. There was such a want of a candidate. Reagan had made the president big again after Nixon's moral fall. Ford's fumbles and Carter's political fall. Now, if the GOP could shape Reagan's revolution, tweak it. Make it. In 84, Democrats ran their comfortable Mondale, hero of the labor activists. Crushed. Now it was time for New Ideas Heart to shine. And the equal of Reagan, perhaps on that TV screen, Telegen, what could possibly go? Reporters that were on him from 1984 never gave up hunting. What was with this guy? Party folks didn't know why he came out of nowhere and came up in the polls. What was with this guy? Why did he change his name from Hart Pence? What was his relationship? with his fundamentalist mother in his hometown of Ottawa, Kansas. What about his birth date? Why'd he change it? How vain. Name, date, mama questions, Hart would call them. Kept coming and coming. Name, date, stupid questions that no other voter would ask him, that no local reporter would ask him, only the pack of national reporters seemed to be destined to write his biography instead of talking about his issues for president. I'm not going to pose, he told one of his aides. I'll talk to the press. I'm not going to sit there and pose with a camera. Newspapers and magazines wanted to do profiles of candidates to get behind, to give readers everything there were. Okay, okay. I'll sit down. We'll do one. I'll go to my hometown. I didn't do that in 84. I probably should have. People were saying, the reason that Walter Mondale slayed you in the 1984 primary, use that famous commercial, where's the beef? And you hadn't prepared them with anything there. There was no person there, just ideas. Well, the new ideas are no good if there's no person behind us. So now he would show up at his hometown. He'd answer a few more reporters' questions. And his staff hooked him up with E.J. Dion, 
known to be a little bit better than most in the pack. Okay, I'll talk to Dion, but I'm not going to pose for the camera. That'll make me look cheap. fortunate thing is I didn't have many larger contributors, and the only reason... See, I went to the big guys for the money. I was ready to prostitute myself in the the manner in which I talk about it. But what happened was they said, come back when you're 40, son. And so I had to go out. Joe got his TV debate just as he had hoped, just as he had pictured in his head, and it couldn't be a worse night for Senator Caleb Boggs of Delaware. The contrast of a young man versus an old one on TV screens across the state that the fledgling Biden campaign didn't have to pay a dime for. Joe didn't attack. He acted the grandson. He had memorized the briefing books. He was a quick study, if there was something important to study about, as he had done in law school. They asked old Boggs about a genocide treaty, and... Senator Boggs responds that he couldn't recall it. It was something that was insisted upon to separate moderate Republicans from right-wing Republicans. The Birch Society didn't like this genocide treaty. Joe knew the treaty. A dumb candidate would attack Boggs for not knowing this treaty and saying, I know, I'm Mr. Smarty Pants. That wasn't the plan. Biden just responds, I don't remember it either. I'll have to look it up. He won by 3,000 votes. I'm a 29-year-old oddball. The only reason I was able to raise the money is I was able to have a national constituency. In a Delaware tradition, Biden and Boggs, winner and loser, rode in a horse and buggy together in front of a parade of voters and press. Late night in Wilmington, and the Bronco races through the streets as the senator shows his aides this place, this house, this beautiful lot. I can do weekends with Jill here. On the ride home, it was quiet. Tim and Tom set him down. It's not going to happen, Senator. There will be no weekends. Everything. What you buy. Who you hang with. Your past life. Girlfriends. Wives. Your current life. All of it will be on the table. You won't see your house. You won't see your plantings. You won't see your Bronco for weeks. The days of two papers in Delaware where if there's some story, you can call up the editor at night, give him your side, and either kill the story or get more favorable coverage. Two papers. Those days are over, Senator. This is a national race. You have to want this. And he told them he did. The thing is, I don't really have to buy the house, he said, turning their idea into his. And then... He sat down with them and went over everything for hours, everything that possibly could be used by opposition, all of it. The aides wrote it down. They dubbed it 
the night of the Bronco. Because I think it illustrates a concern that a lot of people have in this country about George's candidacy. George Bush heroically followed America into war, and he skillfully followed Richard Nixon into China, and he somewhat less enthusiastically followed Ronald Reagan into the modern economics and tax cuts and, and job creation. But the question is, in a Bush presidency, where would he lead America? So far, we haven't seen any vision principles, any policy? Uh, George Bush has one advantage and one disadvantage as a candidate for president in 1988. So wrote a news article. Both of them are Ronald Reagan. Three out of five Americans disapprove of Reagan's handling of foreign affairs. Among Republicans who support Dole, four out of five disapprove of Reagan. Bush voters approved of his policy more than the national average. So wrote Will Schneider in a column. It's like running against Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan's not a candidate. Yeah. And George Bush has been a good vice president. Why shouldn't he be promoted? Now, it doesn't normally work that way in politics. Dole was rapidly becoming the alternative. He was the majority leader of the Senate, and so could take credit for some of the Reagan administration's successes. But he was boosted by his clever minuet of disagreement with fumbling Reaganite tactics on the Iran-Contra standal, and, to an extent, became a rallying point for critics and skeptics. Dole campaign has been staging area for a number of party operatives who were out of favor with the Reagan White House. He'd end up telling Newsweek he was the hope from the heartland, where farms and rust-built factories were in need of help. Jack Germond and Jules Whitcover, with their book, Whose Broad Stripes and Bright Stars, bemoaned that there were changes in 1988, that they could ride with Jack Kennedy in a half-empty bus ride through West Virginia countryside, sipping scotch and getting his impressions on the race, or play what they called Albany Rummy, with Nelson Rockefeller on the campaign plane. Or with Robert Kennedy, with this kind of hair-down access. And here in 88, they couldn't even talk to Bush. They didn't think it changed overnight, but one thing was clear. It simply wasn't present in 1988. 88 was much harsher. Campaigns were run by hired guns rather than old friends in the party. Financed by contributions, doggedly extracted and measured campaigns by bloodless opinion polls. Maybe it was the tape recorders, the devices. Maybe it was the increase in press that after Watergate became so judgmental. But nobody would do off-the-record stories anymore unless they had worked the person for more than a de- worked with the reporter for more than a decade. Bush ran a tight campaign with all of the top Reagan consultants. Even people that didn't necessarily support him politically or think that he was the best candidate signed on. Lee Atwater, coming out of South Carolina, was one of those folks. Bush had an issue, and that was the Iran-Contra issue. Reagan had admitted some fault in the scandal, but escaped personal blame, mostly by pinning it on his own lack of knowledge about what subordinates was doing were doing. 
You know, but Bush as vice president was in most of the national security meetings, was in many meetings in the Oval. There were more details. The Washington Post on January 5th, 1987 says that Bush was more informed of details than he has acknowledged and has been present at national security meetings where issues of Iran-Contra were discussed. One source in the White House said he knew as much as the president. It was picked up by the Des Moines Register and spread to Iowa voters. Bush would stick to the excuse that his conversations with the president, him giving advice to the president, was something that he should keep quiet. Dole jumps on this. It's time for George to lay it all out. Other candidates attacked how reserved the Bush campaign was, how you couldn't get at them. Uh, DuPont said Bush was in a cocoon on Air Force Two. Haig said it was time for him to come out of the cattle chute. Pat Robertson said Bush was using a rose guarding strategy without the rose garden. Big time, so much larger than life, said the Peter Gabriel song. The 80s were a big as a virtue type time. Big bright fashions, enhanced shoulders for women, suspender pants for men, denim jackets, but perfectly crafted denim jackets, and mitten scarves. And power as expressed through your personal computer. The IBM PC2, with three and a half inch discs and the OS2 operating system. How you gonna do it? PS2 it! Not just IBM, the Sinclair 288, the first computer weighing under two pounds. Anything is possible now. Gorbachev and Perestroika. Disposable contact lenses. First AIDS drug, AZT. England and France beginning to discuss a channel between them. DNA used for the first time in a criminal investigation. Belgium bans smoking. And the U.S. Supreme Court says Rotary Clubs must admit women. Movies. The Last Emperor. Moonstruck. Wall Street tells us that greed is good. While on TV, 30-something. All lowercase. Looks at this new generation that so many people are fascinated with because they're so different. The baby boomers and how they are so self-absorbed, so analytical of themselves. Now they're reaching adult life. What are they like? How will they react? That's what friends are for is on the radio. Knowing you can always count on me. A world treaty cuts chlorofluorocarbon CFCs by 50%. Richard Branson cruises the Atlantic in a hot air balloon. James Baldwin and Andy Warhol die. Pete Buttigieg is five years old. Cable TV originally used in the 1950s as its zenith. Invented for rural areas where TV reception is poor, now becomes a convenient way to spread TV content around, especially after deregulation in the 1970s, from 17 million cable households to 53 million in the 1980s, and 70 networks by 1987. Flick the switches on your cable box. And because of all these choices, TV is more experimental, and the pressure on ratings is not as high. Tanner 88, try something new, blends real scenes with Pat Robertson, Bob Dole, Gary Hart, and a fictitious candidate who has very little prospects. In desperation, he has a rant that his staff hears and slyly records it. 
You know, TJ, just before you called me last spring, Lexi and I went down to the Democratic Leadership Conference in South Carolina. The last night we were sitting around with um, Kirk O'Donnell and Hart, Biden, and a couple of the other candidates. And we were shooting the breeze about how much the party had changed since the 60s. And suddenly, out of the blue, Lexi turned to Hart and she asked him who his favorite Beatle was. At first, Hart laughed and he stumbled around trying to remember a name. Then she repeated her question for Biden. Biden said, well, he, he'd never been a Beatles fan. He was into jazz. And Dukakis answered, Paul, because he liked his wife or something. Now, I don't know if Lexi knows the names of all the Beatles herself, let alone the answer to her own question. But it suddenly dawned on me that I sure as hell did. And I knew for sure that anybody who didn't had absolutely no claim to generational leadership. Now, I must have, what, uh, 10 years of Joe Biden. But damn it, he wasn't paying attention back then. And I was. And one of the things I figured out very early on was the singer mattered as much as the song. That ideas were only as valuable as the people who got behind. It's an authentic speech of how things should be. The right answer is John Lennon. It shows the yearning in 1988 for somebody to say something. Cynthia Nixon is the candidate's daughter. And if it's not available on Netflix, DVD, com, well, it might be me that has the copy. Joe Biden was surprised, a senator, and he was a bit of a novelty. He just turned the constitutional age of, of 30 right before he got the office, turned 30 before he had to serve. But he was a junior. I had an office so small that people on my staff had to get up and stand sideways so someone could open the front door. And he got the worst committees. But he got something good out of it. Lots of invites to speak. He even made a joke and perhaps an early flub when he called himself the token young guy and compared it to being a token black guy. He said... Maybe senators should be paid more. Maybe they should have to eschew all of their outside income. This led to a few glares on the floor of the Senate and the conservative Manchester Union to say the voters who elected this stupid, conceited jackass should all kick him in the rear and then kick themselves in the rear for voting for him. He was getting a lot of attention. He, he's, he's making a speech with... Jonas Salk, the inventor of the polio vaccine. And here's this guy that three years ago wasn't even in an office. Hubert Humphrey invites him to speak, and he gets the chance to speak to Richard Daly, mayor of Chicago and arguably the most powerful Democrat in, in 1973. He goes to speak to Cook County Democrats, his organization. The mayor introduces Humphrey, but Humphrey had scheduled Biden to speak. He doesn't name Biden. That's when I realized keynote from a 30-year-old junior senator was not what Mayor Daley had had in mind. I got up anyway, Biden said, recounting the story later. Actually, Mayor Hubert Humphrey came out here with me. I didn't come here with Hubert Humphrey. Daley didn't crack a smile. And therefore, neither did the audience. 
I could tell nobody knew what the hell, who the hell I was or what I was doing there. So I told them how fortunate they were to have somebody like me as the speaker. No reaction. Then I looked back on Daly and said, if he wanted a political future like mine, he had better get on the stick himself. Mayor Daly looked at me and then looked at the audience and then went, Ha! And the crowd went, Ha! Then he went, <laughs> And the crowd did the same. The best lesson in the power of a big city mayor I ever got. Biden is a star in the circuit for 1974, traveling cross-country to speak for candidates in what's going to be a big midterm for his Democratic Party. Very early on, he supports long shot Jimmy Carter. Biden stays loyal. Even as Jimmy Carter is elected and is in the White House, supports his energy bill, supports SALT II, reduction for treaty, still, Biden says, the relations were a little tricky. I always got the feeling that Carter still didn't trust me. I was lucky to get 10 minutes in the White House, and during that time, he was looking at his watch. In Carter's memoir, he did take Biden a little bit more seriously, maybe too late. He mentions how Joe Biden came in and warned him that Ted Kennedy was about to run a primary against him. He was gathering support in the Senate, which turned out to be true. On the issue of busing, Biden stood out. It was, to him, a liberal death trap that was going to hurt Democrats in the 1978 Senate races, of which he would have one. For his part, he cites complaints that he's getting from African-American constituents in Wilmington who don't want their children to be as far away from home. They could no longer pick up their kids. Some of them didn't have cars. If they're bussed out, if there's some kind of emergency, they can't pick up their kids. Teachers who complained to him they'd have to switch school districts that they'd worked for a long time and in some cases take pay cuts. Two-thirds of the people in Newcastle County, the most populated county in the state, would have a new school for their children. It was disruptive, and Biden took a position. If there is segregation by law, in other words, de jure segregation, that was happening because local authorities are insisting on it, that was illegal, and he'd end it. But not for schools that just were racially different, by happenstance, by the neighborhoods that they lived in, de facto segregation. His small state was angry, and there were many crowds that he has to attend as a senator, and they wanted to know what he was doing about the proposed uh, court-instituted busing in Delaware. He stated his position and said that if there was de jure segregation, segregation by law, Jim Crow-type segregation, he'd pay for his own helicopter to bring kids from one school to another. That comment fell flat with an angry mob, and he spent hours calming them down before he could get out of the event. Now, we're giving Biden's side of the busing issue and the side of many people at the time with this de jure, de facto, even the courts are going to make this distinction at a certain point. Uh, Biden was right that many senators would lose their seats in 78. Jimmy Carter himself had hedged on busing. When a Florida senator proposes a bill that would ban any court-ordered busing, Biden tacks on 
an amendment. And that amendment, Biden-Eagleton, is going to be very important because it's going to do two things. One is it's going to still allow court-ordered busing. It's going to keep the court. So Biden plays an important role in keeping the court as a factor in insisting on busing where it's needed. But it does end the health and education and welfare department. This is prior to the Department of Education their ability to order busing by the executive branch. That position that he takes is something that he suffered recent criticism for. Um, the argument of de jure versus de facto would have put you in moderate circles on this issue back in the 70s, but now one could bring up other issues that some neighborhoods, of course, were made de facto because of real estate policies that have been for it, because of insurance policies that because of realtors directing certain people of certain races to one neighborhood of the other. So that this was a distinction without a difference, but it certainly was one that back then was a position many had. Now, Mr. Bush has never appointed a judge. I've appointed over 130, so I have a record. They could sum up what would put him in the White House in one word, competence. Michael Stanley Dukakis would make no mistakes. I don't ask people whether they're Republicans or Democrats. I've appointed prosecutors. I've appointed defenders. I don't appoint people I think are liberal or people who think I, conser- who I think are conservative. I appoint people of independence and integrity and intelligence. Governor of Massachusetts, booming state economy, high-tech, good-paying jobs, the success story of the Democratic Party. These other guys, Biden, Hart, they were dreamers. Exactly what America thinks Democrats do. Dream, talk ideas, talk about running. They didn't govern. That's what Governor Mario Cuomo had told his fellow Governor Dukakis after Cuomo had announced that he wouldn't be running. We govern, Mike. In fact, Dukakis wouldn't get caught leaving Beantown without signing those bills he had to sign, moving that paper. And when he was in the governor's chair, no campaign calls. Get those consultants out of here. Get the job done. And that's why you go to the White House. What was the main problem with Reagan? Not in charge. Not checking what the subordinates were doing. The Duke would be in charge just like he had been in Massachusetts. Sure, Massachusetts liberal New Englander. Well, worked for Kennedy, son of Greek immigrants. No one ever expected Dukakis to win any of his races. Not his first lieutenant and governor's race. Where... The Democratic Party bosses in Massachusetts had picked somebody else, but he had the delegates. It worked them for years. Then in the primary for governor against a strong attorney general, he had stood up for coastal residents against development, got involved in small details, and he won. Little question in his record, especially as the Republicans were failing the managed store. Who else? Gephardt? The rabble that was Congress? Babbitt? The guy with the bow tie? And he stuns them at one point as he raises $4.5 million. Big money in 88, more than anybody. Some of the press write it off. Massachusetts defense contractors, Greek-American fundraising circles, favors owned to a governor in state. It'll fade. But it's signal. He's leading, at least in some category, raising money. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get other assets. Huge advantage in New Hampshire. New Hampshire Democrats knew Michael Dukakis as a friendly governor. They had a Republican governor when they needed a favor, when they had to put the kibitz on the nuclear power plant. Dukakis helped them out. His longtime aide, John Sasso, had it figured out. If Dukakis could just win Iowa, then New Hampshire would fall. And then suddenly, no one else has wins after the first two primaries. Early momentum. Everyone thought that, of course. Just win Iowa. Richard Gaphart, a red-haired Missourian running from Congress, figured the same thing. Could just win Iowa, and that would set up New Hampshire. They were all thinking that. They're all still thinking that. Bush, 110. Reagan, 38. So George Bush is clearly the favorite here among these Republicans. The impossible dream, the asterisk on all these polls... Just four months ago. In 1980, Bush pulled off the political impossibility. He beat Ronald Reagan, the front-runner of the Republican nomination in Iowa. Reagan had nearly beat Ford in 1976. Many people felt that he really did and felt that he should have won, should have had the nomination, and would have beat Carter. Now Bush comes, and in the first race that there is, he beats him in 1980. It wasn't easy. Two things played for him. Reagan barely campaigns in the state of Iowa in 1980. state where he felt he was well-known. He had been a sports radio broadcaster. Of course, that was 50 years ago. And his managers also underestimated what they needed to do. They thought that bringing 30,000 Iowans to the caucuses to vote for their man, Ronald Reagan, would be enough to take the state. Well, they accomplished it. They brought the 30,000, but it wasn't enough people because George Bush got 33,530 Iowans out to vote in those caucuses. And how'd he do that? A savvy aide named Richard Bond worked locally, putting on cards the names of supporters that they had. And then he'd send cards to neighbors. So, did you know that your friend Sally next door is coming out to vote for George Bush? Would you consider coming out to the caucuses? And now, in 1988, Bush had the same team, along with new consultants Lee Atwater, a new assistant, Mary Madeline, Richard Bond, was going to run the operation in Iowa for the first important event. And this is a little easier target. If they could just get 2,000 Iowans to the event to vote for George Bush, probably only needed 1,000. They could just get 2,000 there for this cavalcade of stars that the Iowa GOP was holding in 1987, a year before the presidential election in Ames, Iowa, University Town, a cattle show where the Republican candidates would speak, shake hands, talk, stand in the spotlight, then stay for a straw poll to get an early sense of what Iowans thought, or really 
the Iowans who showed up to the cavalcade thought. Bush wanted to avoid events like this so early on, nothing but just not creating the atmosphere of a winner. But as frontrunner, he had to go. There would be a news story with the word winner next to it after the cavalcade was done, as early as it was. Bush was supposed to be the frontrunner, had to do it. Team Bush, GBFP, as they were called, George Bush for president, went to work. Setting up buses for supporters, getting those tickets done. Straw poll meant turnout. The more people, the more votes the candidate got. And for the Iowa GOP, it was the more support as they built out their state party base. Win-win. If you just had one candidate running, that's not good for a state party. We like that competition. Mailings went out to every known George Bush supporter in Iowa, followed up by by phone banks. Can you come on Saturday? Bush's oil contacts in Texas raised money for the Iowa GOP to show their support. It was early, but Bush had decided on a strategy. Reagan was running it despite Iran Contra, despite what anybody felt. He was with him. He'd be loyal. I work with a great president, and I'm damn proud of it. His statement went out. He let the others distance themselves from a president. He let them talk about the new GOP. He wanted the old one. The machine was in place. But when Bush's team came to Ames, they couldn't have predicted the size of the crowds at the cavalcades. Thousands of Republicans converged along with what seemed to be hundreds of reporters and cameramen. But these Republicans looked different. They didn't look like Bush Republicans. They were, for instance, wearing T-shirts to an event like this. And they were doing too much clapping and whooping to appear dignified. They looked at the crowd with binoculars. The T-shirts said, Robertson, the TV evangelist from the 700 Club, was running and wanted to make a big showing here. Lee Atwater said to Richard Bond at the time, I'm going to kill you. It was Bond's job to get people there. They did, but not enough. The appearance of thousands of evangelical voters from all over Iowa made Bush change his strategy a bit. He had planned to be tough and say, damn proud of it, in the audience, in his speech. And that's what the reporters got in their speech. Damn, the word damn was in there. But he had to drop it and just say, proud of it, when he made his speech. Bob Dole, meanwhile, saw George Bush fall flat with the audience. And he saw how many of the people were out there who were Robertson supporters. Ames was a university town, and some old people from his frat were watching for him, watching the TV and reporting back. He also had a local politician, Chuck Grassley, to announce him. And when he does announce Bob Dole, Grassley says, he's one of us. Dole could see. Bush did didn't work. Talking about Reagan, even attacking Democrats in this crowd at this time, too political. Dole did the best he could in a crowd that wasn't there for him necessarily, but a pro-Robertson crowd. He said he welcomed them to the party. The stakes are high, he said, but we need you, and we need your prayers. Robertson came in first in the Iowa straw poll. 
Dole came in second. Bush, next to the leader of the free world, came in third. Uh, Hart's profile with E.J. Dion did not go well. It was just a slightly nuanced version, he felt, of the same name, date, mama questions that he kept going. Did anybody know that Russia was changing? Did anybody know that there's new technologies now? Did anybody know that the demographics of America were changing? The baby boom generation? The next president would sit down with Gorbachev, work on the environment, the economy. What the heck do they need to know about my name? What I like for breakfast? But E.J. Dion still kept asking questions of that variety. Is it about you that attracts so much attention? What are you getting at, E.J.? Hart responded. Why are there so many questions of it? Let's have it. Why don't you really get at it? Okay. Senator, why do you think we think you're weird? That was the end of the profile interviews, and Hart was generally done with journos. On a windswept rock formation in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, Gary Hart formally announced his candidacy. I make this race because I love my country and I want America to do better. He made the announcement to an audience of 200 staff members, reporters, and family at Red Rocks Park. It was a dramatic backdrop, huge snowy sandstone formation, known as the Garden of Titans, leading to foothills flecked with evergreen and aspen, so wrote the New York Times. Mr. Hart, wearing a blue suit and cowboy boots, arrived in a jeep and took his place at a slab of sandstone. Use of a backdrop and the intention of not taking press questions just led to more press questions from the press. Eventually, and when asked in frustration, Hart would say, put a tail on me. Hi, I'm Valerie Biden-Owens, and I am the sister of the next Democratic nominee for President of the United States. The mood among 3,000 hometown supporters gathered in front of the restored Victorian train station in Wilmington, Delaware, was as buoyant as the red and white and blue balloons. So the papers wrote, yet there was Joe Biden gambling that he could pump up the crowd even higher while challenging his middle-class neighbors with the specter of a nation at risk from materialist values. It is the plight of our children that is the moral test of our time. His voice, the paper said, bounced off the surrounding buildings. But inside, if somebody had hooked me up to a lie detector in 1986 and asked if I was going to be a fully announced candidate for 1988, I would have said no. If they had asked me if I was likely building a base to run for president in 1992 or 96, I'd say absolutely this wasn't like my early days at the Senate. Back then, even when I was running around doing eight coffees a day, I could see that race right down to victory, to being a senator and all I would do as a senator. The presidential race, being president, I couldn't see it. But the men and women who were 
in the business of this, they were hot to go. I knew if I didn't make the moves, they'd find other candidates who were all ready for 1988. Now is the time to meet county chairmen in Iowa, mayors, and city councilmen in New Hampshire. The article about Biden's launch wasn't completely positive. Biden's mouth can be his greatest liability. During a hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last year, Biden came across as a hothead, seeking hot headlines, while he relentlessly badgered George Schultz over U.S. policy towards South Africa. He approached a friend the next day and said, I made a fool of myself. But never mind. With pollster Pat Cadell, Biden exhorts those from their 20s to their 40s to trade up from dreary materialism to exhilarating activism. Baby boomers, the article noted, made up 58% of the voting base this year. And a friendly quote from Republican activist John Sears, Biden on paper has more to work with than the other Democrats. Still, as Biden traveled about his ability to convert paper assets to real ones, some party workers are put off by Biden's verbal excesses. Says an Iowa activist off the record, he just might talk himself out of the nomination. Asked the week after his launch if he would consider Jesse Jackson as a running mate, he said, Jackson lacked elective service experience. He later said the question was silly, given where Jackson was in the polls. And if the president can't get movement, the president has the option of bringing across-the-board penalties against their products coming here. Now, what, what's the evidence? The evidence is that we, when we have stood up, other countries open up. Japan on microchips, and now Canada across the board in the fairest, freest trade treaty that we've ever achieved. Dick Gephardt was running a shoe leather campaign. It's the same way that he had always won in Missouri. Shake every hand, go to every door. And he had spent over a 100 days in Iowa working that state. After all, that's what Jimmy Carter did. Um, it's what he always had done. But something was off because he was still not getting beyond that 1% to 3% in the early polls until he figured something out. His, the way he had run his campaign was that he had House members that would support him. If you elect me president, I'll be able to get stuff done from day one. What's the biggest problem with the Reagan administration? They can't get things through Congress. It's a Democratic Congress. I won't have that problem. And here's all these House members that already support me and I'm agenda. I'll get things done. I know the House. Great message for the press fell flat in Iowa, New Hampshire. So he decides on a new strategy. And it comes, and he, he, he first makes a speech, then turns it into a TV ad. We make a car here called the Chrysler K car that cost $10,000. Compare it to the Hyundai that costs 7000 But if you sell it in Korea, and his teeth clenched as he's saying this, with different tariffs, the car now costs $40,000. When I'm president, I will meet with the South Koreans, and I'm going to ask them, to remove the tariffs. And when they leave the table, they're going to be thinking how they're going to sell their Hyundai in the U.S. when it costs 40000 I was hurting. Farms are foreclosing. He makes it a speech, then TV ads, and each week he moves up in the polls. As one observer had said, Gephardt was now the Howard Beale of American politics. 
referring to the famous anchor man in the TV movie network who said, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. That he had spent decades in Washington, D.C. working with insiders was not part of this advertising message. Because tonight we have an opportunity to play a part in one of the most exciting and significant political developments in the modern history of the United States. From The Nation, 1988, Jesse Jackson is a serious candidate for the presidency. He was always serious. It was just the political scientists and other politicians who belittled his campaign, trivialized his efforts, and disdained his prospects. For five years, his distance from the funders, the managers, the mediators, and the consultants who manipulate the Democratic Party and legitimize its candidates has allowed Jackson to do unimaginable things and say unspeakable words about race, about class, about equality, and indeed, about democracy. In 1988, Bernie Sanders endorses Jesse Jackson. That's a clip that later has become famous because when Bernie Sanders during the 2016 Democratic primary was attacked, oh, you know, you don't have enough support among African Americans. What have you done for civil rights? He pointed out that he was one of the few senators uh, that endorsed Jesse Jackson in 1988. Jesse Jackson's brand of politics fits Sanders very well. Here's where some of Jesse Jackson 88's issues. Creating a work progress administration to rebuild infrastructure. Reprioritizing the war on drugs to focus lefts on mandatory minimums for drug users. And more on harsher punishment for money laundering bankers and others who are part of the supply end. Reversing Reaganomics-inspired tax cuts for the richest 10%. Declaring a Apartheid South Africa to be a rogue nation in the world. Instituting an immediate nuclear freeze. What must presidents do? Convene the family. What must presidents do? Convene a management team of comforted people. They have guided our government on a daily basis. Most of those who become Secretary of State, Attorney General, Secretary of Labor, are not elected officials. Congress people and senators are. Some elected officials are not leaders. And some leaders are not elected officials. Find leadership where you can. More controversial were proposals for reparations for the descendants of black slaves. Now, he insisted he wasn't sure what form those would take. It might be like education grants or something like that. But he brings up the issue in 88, also supporting the formation of a Palestinian state. He gets another senator that hasn't, you know, been talked about as much, but it means a lot in 1988's race. And that is Ernst, Ernest Hollings of South Carolina, who ran for president in 1984, kind of like a moderate conservative Reagan Democrat, endorses him. Calling each other friend and brother, one newspaper account writes, the two presented a scene that would have been unimaginable 30 years ago. Hollings is the only white superdelegate pledged to the Chicago civil rights leader at the Democratic convention, and that disturbs Jackson. The candidate made his views known to 33 senators who were also superdelegates at a reception where Hollings was hosting. Jackson said he received almost 30% of the popular vote in the primaries. 
and had hoped he would receive a proportionate number of endorsements from the superdelegates, party and elected officials, who were delegates not selected to the primary. Even though I received 7 million votes, only Senator Hollings has endorsed me. Jesse Jackson's run in 1988 was a build-on from his run in 1984. It was historic. There were some interesting dynamics in the race in 1988 now that people had seen what happened in 1984. For one thing, other African-American politicians, most notably Coleman Young in Michigan, mayor of Detroit, who had supported the Democratic establishment, who had supported Mondale in 1984, now flock to Jesse Jackson because they see where their population is going, where their constituents are going. And everyone's excited about Jesse, and they're going with him. Jesse's going to increase his vote share by four times. Not only that, his manager, uh, Jerry Austin, really insisted on a be-in-it-to-win-it campaign to try to find opportunity. One of the things is there's nobody contesting like the Alaska caucus. So he he literally sends up a box of Jesse pins uh, up there to some activists, and they end up winning that caucus. That was just the one of the cheapest and easiest. You know, he he estimates it cost him fifteen fifty for the whole campaign. Jackson's so-called kill ratio was like four to one. You know, compared to the other candidates. In other words, your vote per dollar was four times better than any any other candidate. And he had another advantage in nineteen eighty eight that. Opposing candidates were not aiming their fire at Jackson for fear of angering his base. And at some point, Jesse's either going to get to the convention or he's going to drop out of the race and someone's going to have to take those delegates. The Dukakis people in particular are hands off. So in some ways, Jackson in 88 is running against himself trying to do better than what he did in 84 to build up at the highest level. You know, his campaign was insisting they were going for the nomination. Probably it was more aiming for vice presidency. After all, in 84, you had nominated a woman vice president. Maybe it was time for the Democratic Party to embrace an African-American vice president. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches... April 9th. And the next president of the United States has to be someone the American people can believe will will stay with his convictions. And if pressure comes from Gorbachev, from domestic interest groups, from wherever the pressure comes, you got to be willing to stand your ground and be consistent. And just when the race was comfortable and people were finding their places, a new factor had entered the primaries. 
he hoped initially to get his name out with a race, you know, a light race, and then maybe run for 92. But heavyweight donors looking at the 88 race from 30,000 feet didn't see the exciting scrum that others did. They saw liberal governor from Massachusetts, sales tax guy, crazy heart, reverend, guy with a bow tie, liberal house member, and wanted to find a candidate that could be a Democratic moderate. Al Gore, son of a Tennessee senator, and a Tennessee senator himself, with a nifty knack for arms control issues. He'd do in a pinch. And when he did, he started swinging in everyone. He was the moderate, the Reagan Democrat, the Southerner. Dukakis wouldn't play in the South. Some Democrats want to vote against any weapon system. He chide them. Turn and run may work for some, but not for my country. Strangely, although he was new in the race, he was almost as well-funded as Dukakis right off the bat, raising millions of dollars. Each candidate that drops in or drops out of a race like 1988, where there are so many different candidates running, changes the whole race a little. Sam Nunn, the powerful military-supporting senator from Georgia, dropped out of the race. That created this opportunity for Gore. And once Gore was in, he primarily took on Gephardt and Dukakis. He made it clear that nominating Dukakis was a signal to the South. They weren't wanted. And attacking Gephardt's anti-contra votes. But in any race where there's multiple people running, there's some strange dynamics that only a political physicist could predict or measure. Because with Gore dropping in, Now Paul Simon is seeing, well, wait, you know, I may have 9% in Iowa now. This guy's going to take it away. I don't think any of us need to be knifing each other, he attacks Gore. Bruce Babbitt, too, takes a shot at Gore for being too tough. You're coming off as a tough kid on the block, Al. For modern listeners, hearing Al Gore is a more conservative to moderate Democrat in the field, it is probably difficult to understand the way issues have fallen since then. But in 1988, that's exactly where it was. It is important to note, and Gephardt is pointing this out in debates, that there are many occasions where Gore's voting record is somewhat liberal, particularly for someone from Tennessee. And the issues of arm control is, you know, it's not one that's as popular Now, in the 1980s, having an arms control issue on your resume, it was an interesting combination, especially for Democratic senators, because what you're able to do, it has the word arms in there. But what you're really doing is negotiating peace. But because it's arms control, if you say you're an arms control expert or an advocate for arms control, experienced arms control negotiator, and they would send these congressional teams out to work with the administration on negotiations with the Soviet Union, it made it seem like you had strong foreign policy credentials. You know, it's, it seems warlike, even though it's something that's peaceful. You can appeal to two groups at the same time. Same with like, you know, fiscally conservative. That was an issue that, that was a, description that you heard a lot in the 80s and 90s. You don't hear a lot of this among Democrats now. The strategies are different. But fiscally conservative was a way to say, look, I'm going to balance the budget. Of course, one of the ways you might balance the budget is with a new tax. Let me announce in advance that I am making a brief announcement here, and then Judge and I are going to depart. The image of the Reagan White House has been covered up by the kind of Gaga nostalgia that surrounds Reagan. 
I've talked about Reagan quite a bit on the podcast, but you have to understand that he was a politician as any other during that time. That's the way it was felt. No magic. Better operator than Carter in politics, certainly, but no magic. There were lots of Reagan comments, lots of Reagan complaints. My next door neighbor, Mr. Middlehammer, God bless the guy, 80 years old and walking around the town two miles a day at least, he used to take a nickel in his hand and, you know, voila, he would show us a dime. Then he'd say, I can't change a dime into a nickel. Only Ronald Reagan can do that. These are the kind of comments that, you know, it doesn't matter who's president. You just insert X into the joke. And certainly a number of Carter jokes that I grew up with. My point is, uh, he was the president subject to ebbs and flows. The economy was great. And I won't say to you no questions. I know better than that. Having been in here before, there will be no answers. But that doesn't mean everyone feels great during that time. So in 1987, you get the Iran-Contra hearings. He's staying out of trouble by, while at the same time exposing managerial failability, he's on the ropes. Thank God for Gorbachev in some ways. But the administration going into this time is getting attacked by their conservatives, getting attacked by Republicans generally, um, attacked by the media. You know, the Reagan White House isn't offering as much to the party as it had in the beginning of the decade. But it's with great pleasure and deep respect for his extraordinary abilities that I today announce my intention to nominate United States Court of Appeals Judge Robert H. Borg. So the administration announces that they will appoint Robert Bork to an opening in the Supreme Court. The opening is created by Lewis Powell, who is a moderate on the court. So this is a conservative being appointed. Ted Kennedy makes a statement from the get-go. Bork will lead to back-alley abortions. But he's not the chair of the judiciary. Now, Planned Parenthood, other groups are against the Bork nomination. But Biden is the chair. It's his committee. Biden can handle it. Says, let's go talk to Howard Baker, chief of staff in the Reagan White House. He's a good guy. Good guy. He cancels a speech he's going to in New Hampshire. Get the meeting in the White House. We could just talk it out. They won't want the fight. And I'm not sure I can win the fight. I got Democrats, but DeConcini in Arizona holding on to his seat. Howard Heflin in Alabama. Who knows how he's going to vote? Can we win this? Not with Ted Kennedy turning this into a TV war. He goes to the White House. They listen. They nod. And they go forward with the nomination. Give back something to the base and they'll look past the slide to the left on Gorby, arms control, tax reform. Biden doesn't handle the rest well. He comes out and says he'll do everything to stop the nomination. Then he's attacked for not being objective. He's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Should be open-minded. Then he says he regrets making the statement. Now, liberal groups go after him. As Jules Whitcover says, he just can't stop talking. It became something of a tradition if you work on the East Coast and travel between D.C. and New York or your train hits 
The next station stop will be Wilmington, Delaware. And you kind of pop your head out the window. <laughs> and, you know, and I remember traveling with my old boss at the time. And、uh, he said, look, look. And, you know, you think it's going to be a rainbow or something. And it's Biden. Biden sightings. You know, Amtrak Joe. Because as a senator, Biden famously took the train home every day to Wilmington to be with his sons, Bo and Hunter. Now, there's a reason that this is the case. You know, he, he's, he's known for this, but, you know, there's a reason that this is the case.、Uh, a month after the election, his greatest triumph, he wins a seat in the Senate, and his first step into national office, he experiences a great personal tragedy when a truck slams into the car. His wife, Nelia, and his daughter are killed. His son,、uh, Bo, who passed away a few years ago, and Hunter, who's still alive, were in the car. And they were injured pretty severely. This truck hit the side of her car, pushed the car. They're, all, they're both in the hospital for some time. His sister, Val, steps in. And the senator elect finds himself at the hospital and you know, asking why. I, I knew about Amtrak Joe. I didn't know until I was doing podcasts. And getting more into politics, that Joe Biden's reason for being Amtrak Joe, for going home, you know, nights, not only because it is a luxury, let's face it, afforded to the Delaware senator, that's only probably,、uh, you can do it from the East Coast states. But it's also because he wanted to be a strong father to them. I, I didn't know prior to doing this cast that Joe Biden even was thinking of quitting. He said after six months, quitting the Senate because of what had happened. But it wasn't until I did this particular podcast that I realized that being Amtrak Joe helped him and also hurt him because he's also going home each night and therefore staying out of that DC reporter culture. And reporters, not unlike with Hart, don't really know him that well. What's the difference? Bob Dole led the fight to save Social Security. George Bush had nothing to do with it. Bob Dole pushed President Reagan's tax cuts through the Senate. George Bush had nothing to do with it. Bush campaign now wanted to show voters who Dole really was. All of this, not one of us, really annoyed George Bush. And they had a weapon. They would ask him to release his tax returns. Dole, after all, was a multimillionaire. They leaked the story to local newspapers, Iowa, New Hampshire. Ask him about his tax returns. All Bob Dole could do was respond, gosh, you guys really swallowed that story from Bush. There were questions about his real estate deals, his relationships with bankers in Russell, Kansas, and all over the state. How did he get all this money as a senator? It's a blind trust, he would tell reporters. Started to annoy him in Iowa and New Hampshire. He'd talk to real people about their real problems. And all reporters would ask back to Dole is, what's your net worth? Beats me. Why don't you release your returns? Nobody gave it to me. The American dream. Bush kept the story for weeks going in the press. And eventually, Bush had to hand his tax returns. So did Dole. 20 years of tax returns, as it told, turned out. The story disappeared for the most part. 
This was Judge Robert Bork's second day of confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Joe Biden went over and over this story as he did his research as to what he might do to oppose the Bork nomination. John Rutledge was a force in politics in South Carolina at the founding of the nation. He and his younger brother would play a role. He was a judge on South Carolina's Chancery Court and a member of the U.S. Constitutional Convention in 1787. In 1795, he was appointed for the Supreme Court by President George Washington. And at the same time, John Jay had been sent to Great Britain to negotiate a treaty with that country, and the results were unpopular with many Americans when it was leaked to the press. These are the types of things and the pages that Joe Biden was turning, learning more and more about John Rutledge, and about especially how Rutledge had done what few Supreme Court nominees would do. He spoke out on a major issue. Rutledge was angered as any about the leaked details of the Jay Treaty. And when asked to speak mid-nomination, he did what few justice nominees would do. He spoke out, As dearly as I love Washington, I'd rather see him dead than sign this treaty. He didn't just come out against the treaty. He came out against the treaty in a big way. And... Those comments, mixed with some concern about his sanity, compelled the Senate to vote against his nomination. Not only this, but Judge Learned Hand never got a Scottish job. All right, he wasn't nominated, but he was never nominated by president because he was a stream supporter of free speech. No one questioned John Rutledge's constitutional knowledge, his education, his law experience. No one questioned how good a judge Learned Hand was. In fact, he was a very good one. People relied on his decisions. He swayed justices that were on the court. But John Rutledge was denied a seat in the Supreme Court of the United States, not for his law ability, because of his views. Biden liked this story so much and was telling so many people, speaking at the ABA about Rutledge, started calling him Old John, Old John. This is the situation he's in, Biden realized. Robert Bork was a professor at Yale. You can't argue. Qualifications. Heck, Biden was for, went to law school at Syracuse to disapprove a judge. They can consider that. The press can. The ABA can. Southern Democrats, Western Democrats that he's dealing with on his committee can. That's what you have to look at. Learn at hand. Old John. In between hearings. There was not much time for the campaign. The campaign was writing a speech on the plane. Big speech. Iowa State Fair. I need an ending. An aide, David Wilhelm, found something that Bill Schneider had wrote in an article. Uh, what about the Kinnick stuff? Kinnick. The public began to warm to Labour's leader, Neil Kinnock, who slowly started chiseling away at the Tories' lead in the polls. Mr. Trevithy said last week that it was a walkover. This election, you're going to walk away with it. He said, oh, no, no, I didn't say that at all. The leader of the Labour Party had lost the British election in 1987, but had improved his party's chances. And there was a great speech where he talked about his generation and his uh, ancestors and how come he was the first one to go to college. Was it because they were such bad people or such sloths? Or was it because of better policies? And it, for Biden, 
it framed everything of why one would be a Democrat. Biden had just spoken to the Democrats in 1982, told them to get away from the special interests, incurred a little bit of uh, wrath for that among some in the party. Yeah. So when he came across this Kinnick stuff, spoke volumes. Yeah. Let's use that. Nothing to hide. Uh, I made a mistake. I made a series of mistakes. I regret those. When reporters staked out Gary Hart's house in D.C., he did exactly what any pre-booting thinking spirit would do. Not what you or I might do, or probably what any of the other 88 candidates would do. He went out and talked to those reporters. An anonymous tip about a possible affair had led Miami Herald reporters to confront Hart outside his Washington townhouse. Their story ran the next day. The very same day, the New York Times printed quotes from an earlier Hart interview. Gary Hart fled to his mountain retreat in Colorado Thursday. Believe me, if my intent was to have a relationship with a woman, particularly a very attractive one, uh, I certainly wouldn't have gone about it this way. I invited press scrutiny. <laughs> Do not know, I'm not going into a theological definition of what constitutes adultery. Some people's minds, it's people being married and having relationships with other people. And just like that, it was over. I apologize for being late. There was a little traffic coming down Bear Creek Canyon this morning. He goes out and makes a speech to reporters. I've intended, quite frankly, to come down here this morning and read a short, carefully worded political statement saying that uh, I was withdrawing from the race and then quietly disappear from the stage. And there's this little moment in the speech where it's like, is he actually, listen to the supporters clapping, like, is he actually going to go through with this or is he not leaving the race? And And then after frankly, tossing and turning all night, as I have for the last three or four nights. I woke up about four or five this morning with a start. And I said to myself, hell no. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because it's not my style and because... No, he was... But he wanted to bash the press a little while he was doing it. Thank you very much. Now, clearly, Lee and I have never had a tougher week, but I'm not a beaten man. I'm an angry and defiant man. I've said that I bend, but I don't break. And believe me, I'm not broken. There's a lot of work to do. We're all going to have to seriously question the system for selecting our national leaders. That reduces the press of this nation to hunters and presidential candidates to being hunted. Events of this week should not deter any of you who are idealistic young people from moving on and moving up. I would say to the young people of this country, the torch of idealism burns bright in your hearts. It should lead you into public service and national service. It should lead you to want to make this country better. And whoever you are and whatever you do in that cause, at least in spirit, I will be with you. Thank you very much. This is big. 
because Hart's withdrawal was not predicted by anyone. It excites the Biden people. Jump ball, one of his Iowa's hands say. But that's a probably the only campaign among all of them that are excited about this. The other Pauls are hoping that he'd stay in. Hart had 62% of the Iowa Democrats in the polls when he got into the race. But professional party people didn't like him. And also, there was a big feeling that his support was soft. And while no one anticipated the Donna Rice story, there was a sense that something like this would come out. There was just some something unknown about him, and he was covering. And uh, in any case, even if a candidate couldn't beat them, you know, couldn't beat Hart, they sense weakness. And they wanted to be that number two or to win Iowa and be that giant killer to get those news stories. Well, without Hart, there was no giant to kill. You know, as one of uh, Bruce Babbitt's uh, political consultants says, Iowa was the dragon. Who would be the St. George? A journal article after the 1988 election by Paul Abramson talked about how voters make decisions in a world of imperfect information and a primary with so many candidates presents interesting challenges. What will voters do? Suppose there are three candidates, A, B, and C, whom a voter prefers in that order. Suppose A has very little chance of winning. But the race between B and C is close. One form of sophisticated voting occurs if a vote for B is cast to to avoid a wasted vote on A. The key is the relative intensity of preferences and the perception that a voter's vote can help make a candidate win or lose. Does it matter? Some argue it doesn't matter because few voters think that their vote will actually, you know, break a tie. Like all assumptions, this is a simplification of reality. We tested multi-candidate voting in three ways. This is writing after the 88 election. Each led to conclusion that GOP and Democratic voters do use sophisticated voting. In other words, they're not always voting for their favorite. Our evidence suggests that voters are not fickle and they don't simply support winners. Instead, they make reasoned and sensible decisions, combining feasibility with attractions as a candidate. Overall, it's not just electability. It's how much electability. And they're to look at, you know, and and to summarize the conclusions of Aberson's paper, and he, you know, he suggested that there was still a lot of work to do. It's not just about, hey, I, I really want A to win, but I'm going to vote for B because I like B better than C. It's also an assessment of, well, how much more of a chance does B have to win than A? You know, does the candidate I'm settling for have then the candidate I really like? And that voters are using that calculus. You kind of saw this in the 84 election that between Hart and Mondale in that primary, that 
Hart had that electability factor, but it started to fade, and he wasn't getting the type of poll numbers showing his electability as that much greater than Mondale as the race went on more. I, too, would like to welcome everyone to the Economics of America debate, a forum we believe will help Iowans be better informed about some of the presidential candidates prior to the Iowa caucuses. Getting down to the business, let me introduce the candidates, and may I ask that there be no applause in the interest of saving time. In 1911, the Iowa State Fair created a new exhibit, the Butter Cow, a huge cow shaped from a slab of delicious gold butter. It's been a tradition since then, and it was there in 1988, too, along with other butter sculptures. 200 food stands, where you could get fried Snickers, fried Oreos, pickled pickled dogs, pork chops on a stick, mm. bacon-wrapped hot dogs in cornmeal. Performing that year, George Strait, Alabama, but not just country, Gloria Stefan, Julio Iglesias, the Iowa State Fair chose the Fair Queen, and talent contests were held. But in 88, like years whenever there's a presidential, the Iowa Fair boasts one more attraction, the politicians. All the candidates, including Biden, doing a debate, delivering what he thinks is the feisty chart. Why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family to go to college? My ancestors who worked in the coal mines came up after 12 hours to play football for hours. Why is it that my wife who's sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family to ever go to college? The speech that Neil Kinnock had given. Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to be able to get the university? even to the point of coal miners. and That was British football, and Joe Biden was saying they were playing American football. And crucially, aide Tim Ridley realizes they didn't credit Kinnick in the speech. Now, other times he's making this speech in Iowa, he credits this. Reporters have documented this. Biden campaign even produces a tape where he credits Neil Kinnick, but Biden didn't realize it. But fortunately, neither do the reporters at the Iowa State Fair, like Kinnick, I should have just said, like Kinnick, in that speech. It was naive as hell. February 26, 1984, snowy New Hampshire. Jesse Jackson walks into Temple Adith Yeshurun. He's feeling like he's at a breaking point. Worst scandal he's ever faced. Later, he's going to describe the scene as Daniel in the lion's den. But the reason that he's in trouble in 84 after this kind of revolutionary campaign is that he had an off-record conversation with Washington Post reporters. He first denies where he refers to New York City as Jaime Town. He first says, you know, I didn't do this. Then he says, why are you making such a big deal out of it? Does everything but apologize. His wife doesn't want him to apologize. His key aides don't want him to apologize. Eventually, he decides he tells one of the aides, quickest way between two points is a straight line. And here, New Hampshire apologize. In private talks, we sometimes let our guard down and we become thoughtless. 
It was not in a spirit of meanness, an off-color remark having no bearing on religion or politics. However, innocent and unintended, it was wrong. So what he tries to say is that he was making like a kind of colloquial remark that someone who was African-American in Chicago, he even goes as far as to tell one magazine that there were uh, places that you could shop that in Chicago and they wouldn't allow African-Americans in. So you had to go to Hyman and Sons and that would be where you would get a suit or a coat. Um, and that he didn't mean any kind of insult to the people. It was just how he referred to it. Uh, you know, there are a couple leaders that were willing to accept that. Maybe some of the more of the reform Jewish community. It's okay. It was a dumb thing to say, but it wasn't a mistake. But Alexander Schindler, the president of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, said that his apology was made belatedly, and it doesn't acknowledge the gravity of his language. This is combined with Jackson being supportive of the PLO, of meeting with the PLO, of wanting a policy for a Palestinian state. So it's all mixed up in this. Some of his advisors, Bill Howard, Gene Wheeler, Herb Daughtry, later conceded that Jackson would use this term often. In 1979, he goes to Beirut, he meets with Arafat, and arms entwined, smiling, there's a photo taken. On the other hand, it's 1988 now. He's four years from his comments. He's going to start meeting with all sorts of groups, with labor unions, factory workers, you know, who are striking, and try to build this Rainbow Coalition into something more. Here's from Richard Ben Kramer. When the Biden team got the call about the Kinnick stuff, no one was worried. Not about that. High noon with Bork. That was in four days. That was going to be the tough obstacle, but also a good opportunity for their guy. Of course, they knew it was serious. The Times was calling. Maureen Dowd. Whatever she wrote, it got play in the press. She was asking if Biden had any coal mining ancestors. They were trying to determine that. Tom Donilon got on the phone. Maureen, we are in the biggest constitutional fight in 50 years, and you want to know whether Biden's great-grandfather was a coal miner? Alas, he had no coal mining ancestors, but wasn't worried. All these reports, all these reporters were there at the Iowa Fair. Nobody said a word. No one asked about it. And you have this scene where uh, Tim Ridley goes to get the newspaper in the morning, you know, after having talked to Maureen Dowd the day before, and it's like, whew, looks through it. Oh, great. Checks the politics section, you know, checks, oh, great. Don't see any evidence that this is going to become a story. Until he looks at the front page. And there it is. I want to thank you for listening. Remember, the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com.
We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.